0: Would you pray with me as we start? Holy Father in heaven, we give you thanks for all of your kindness. Show to us an insight today into your word, we pray. Let the Holy Spirit guide our minds and our hearts as we hear and receive. Amen. Well, you know, Lamentations is one of those books that hardly anyone ever reads. Most people find it pretty depressing And it seems to be very Jewish and not very relevant to what we as Christians wish to read. I'm going to try to help you to find a way into it today. Stuart's allocated three weeks to this book. And I'm taking the first sermon. So somebody else will take the others. Now, Lamentations is not like many other books. Mostly you can sort of divide it up and sort of give a couple of chapters to one person and a couple of chapters to another. But Lamentations is a work of art. It's like studying Monet's water lilies, for example. You you wouldn't divide it up into thirds and sort of examine a third each week. What you would probably do is, first of all, stand well back and take a long distance look. And then later on in successive weeks, somebody might come in and examine smaller sections and look at the brushstrokes and whatever. And so what we're doing today is to take this long-distance look. The book was probably written by Jeremiah the prophet, immediately following the destruction of Jerusalem, following the the siege of Jerusalem by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. After that, the nation of Judea was taken into captivity where it stayed for quite some time. So we do need to understand a little history, but I'm not going to do too much today. But you might just like to reach out, turn the knob on the seat back in front of you, switch it to the History Channel, and let's begin. So the king of Judea refused to pay tribute to King Nebuchadnezzar. The city was besieged by the Babylonians. The king of the time, King Zedekiah, tried to escape all on his own. There you go royal families and all that sort of thing, and he went out through a secret passageway with his children and a lot of the nobles of the land, and they, and they headed off in the open country. But they were overtaken by the Babylonian armies anyway and captured. And this is the gory bit, I'm sorry, but the Babylonians made him watch as they killed all of his sons, all of the nobles that came with him, and then so that that would be the last thing that he would remember, they took out his eyes. And then they took him captive off to Babylon. The Israelites had believed that God would not let them down. They thought that he would save his people, that Jerusalem would be an eternal habitation, there'd always be a king of David's line on the throne. They were disappointed. After a long siege of Jerusalem... The invasion commenced on the seventh day of the Hebrew month of Av in 587 BC. Continued through to the tenth, three days of siege, of invasion, <clears throat> and the actual destruction of the temple took place on the ninth of the Hebrew month of Av. Remember this date, it's important. In Hebrew, the date is called Tisha B'Av the 9th of Av. It's regarded as the most tragic day in the Jewish calendar. It usually occurs in July, but depending on how our calendar and theirs goes, it can be in a different month. This year it'll fall in August. But this disaster would not be the only one to strike the Jewish people on or around Tisha B'Av. The second temple, the one that Jesus visited and that turns up in the New Testament, was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. And although the entire siege of the city took about a month, the temple was set fire on the 9th of Av. Tijar, b'Av. 65 years later, another revolt took place against the Romans. This time it was led by one Simon Bar Kokhba, And the leading rabbi of the day, Rabbi Akiva, declared Simon to be the Messiah. Of course, it failed. And the city where the final defeat took place was the city of Betar. And on the final day, the 9th of Av, 80,000 Roman troops entered the stronghold and slaughtered over half a million Jewish men. There was... All the women and children were taken captive, sold as slaves. In fact, there were so many that the slave market collapsed for some time. Tisha B'Av. The First Crusade, sanctioned by Pope Urban, commenced on 24th of Av, just two weeks after Tisha B'Av. 10,000 Jews were killed in the first month. Entire Jewish communities were wiped out through the Rhinelands and through France. In 1090, on the 9th of Av, Tisha B'Av, King Edward I in England signed the Edict of Expulsion. All Jews in England had to leave. In 1306, the day after Tisha B'Av, all Jews were expelled from France. In 1492, all Jews were expelled from Spain and the last date that they could be found there on pain of death was the 9th of Av, July 31, Tishaba Av. 53,000 families were expelled from Spain, at least a quarter of a million people. Some escaped to Morocco where they were so poor and in such desperate straits, some of them sold their children in the slave markets for a loaf of bread. In 1941... Exactly on Tisha B'Av, Heinrich Himmler received the letter with the official approval from Hitler to commence the final solution, the destruction of all Jews in Europe. In 1942, on Tisha B'Av, the trucks rolled into the Warsaw ghetto and the mass deportation of Jews commenced as tens of thousands were transported to Treblinka, Auschwitz, bergen Belson. These are just some of the tragedies that have fallen upon the Jewish people on or almost on Tisha B'Av. Of course, hundreds of others have happened at other times of year. In one of the rabbinic commentaries on this book of Lamentations, Moses is said to address God using these words. Lord of the universe, you have written in your law... Whether it be a cow or a ewe, you shall not kill it and its young both in one day. But the enemy has killed many, many mothers and sons, and you are silent. There was no response from God recorded. On Tisha B'Av, Jews hold a solemn 25 hour fast. The book of Lamentations is read in synagogues to this day, will be done this year in the two synagogues here on the Gold Coast. August 10-11 is Tisha B'Av this year. And prayers and laments are offered for millions of Jewish lives lost on and around this day, over nearly two and a half thousand years. Well, we might read the the twelfth verse of the first chapter. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look around and see. Is any suffering like my suffering that was inflicted on me, that the Lord brought on me in the day of his fierce anger? Well, that's all very Jewish. How do we read Lamentations as Christians? My standard approach when I look at a new book, and to be honest, I, I'd read Lamentations before Stuart asked me to preach on this, but I'd never really thought about it. And my standard approach is to examine its structure. It's, it's a useful way in. So in Lamentations, all five chapters have 22 verses, except for chapter 3, which has 66 Each of chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4 are acrostics. That is to say, each verse starts with the, the succeeding letter from the Hebrew alphabet. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. So each sentence starts with a new letter. Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, and so on. So 22 verses. Aleph is a silent letter in Hebrew. So you might say that each verse, each chapter rather, starts with a moment of silence. And the third chapter is a kind of triple acrostic. Each letter is used three times to start new verses, so A, 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 B, 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 and so on. So there are 66 rather than 22 verses. And the last chapter is not an acrostic at all. It still has 22 verses, But the initial letters are random. It's it's as though the orderliness and structures that have governed the whole story up till now have been broken. The letters of the alphabet are simply not capable of summing up this, this mind sorrow, this heart heaving burden. So I said today we were going to take a long distance view of this book. So there's some structure. Is there any other structure that this writer wants us to see? Clearly, so far, this is not accidental. It's often useful to ask questions of a biblical book like, what's the central passage? What are the first and last bits? Are there repeated phrases? There's a range of questions that one can ask. Well, finding the centre of this book is pretty easy because it's so systematic. It's not always as easy in, in all biblical books. It must be in the middle of chapter 3, logically. And since it has 66 verses, we'll look at the three verses that lead up to the centre. For no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. Well, that looks pretty helpful, does it not, for our study. Right here in the middle of this book, it's as though this poet is giving us the core of a hope in the midst of the tragedy. And in the midst of whatever tragedy you've walked in this morning, in your heart, there's hope. So let's dig a little bit further as students into this centre point idea and just see what the 11th verse in some of the other chapters are. In chapter 1, the 11th verse reads, All her people groan as they search for bread. They barter their treasures for food to keep themselves alive. Look, Lord, and consider, for I am despised. In chapter 2, the 11th verse reads, My eyes fail from weeping. I am in torment within. My heart is poured out on the ground because my children are destroyed, because children and infants faint in the streets of the city. Now, because my sermon time is running out, I'm I'm going to help you out quickly here. The 11th verses in the last two chapters don't look quite as promising as these. So we think, well, yes, but the poet reached a climax with his 66 verses in chapter 3. Perhaps then he changed the structure. So we go to the last verse of chapter 4 and we read, O daughter of Zion, your punishment will end. He will not prolong your exile. But, O daughter of Edom, he will punish your sin and expose your wickedness. And the last verse of the last chapter reads, Unless you have utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. Now, it helps to know that the Jewish custom in public readings of Scripture goes like this. If the last verse of a reading is in any way negative or unpleasant... You simply go back until you find a more pleasant verse and you read that again after the last verse as the last verse. It's quite a nice custom. I think we should adopt it. And the second last verse in our book reads, restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may return, renew our days as of old. So let's revisit our long-distance view. We're standing back and looking at Monet's water lilies from a distance. So if we take all those centre bits that we've been looking at and put them all together and read them, how's it going to look? We can get rid of all of the, the stuff that's around the side and just focus on the main parts. And we'll find that there's a very encouraging poem right through this book. Follow it as we go. The first verse of chapter one, How deserted lies the city once so full of people. How like a widow is she who once was great among the nations. She who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave. And the middle verse of chapter one, all her people groan as they search for bread. They barter their treasures for food to keep themselves alive. Look, Lord, and consider, for I am despised. In the middle verse of chapter 2, my eyes fail from weeping. I am in torment within. My heart is poured out on the ground because my people are destroyed, because children and infants faint in the streets of the city. The middle of the book, for no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. O daughter of Zion, your punishment will end. He will not prolong your exile. But O daughter of Edom, he will punish your sin and expose your wickedness. Restore us to yourself, Lord, that we may return. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us. And are angry with us beyond measure. Restore us to yourself, Lord, that we may return. Renew our days as of old. So it seems to me that the writer has carefully structured this book so that as Jewish people read it, they begin to find hope amidst the shards and fragments of all the brokenness that surrounds them. And as Christians reading it, we find hope too. Because surely we see in it the deeply embedded hope of the Messiah. And so we understand now why the Holy Spirit spoke to the Virgin Mary with some very particular words as he announced her destiny. Follow this on from what we've read in Lamentations. You will conceive and give birth to a son. And you are to call him Jesus, God saves. He will be great. And he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Oh, there it is again. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. And so Mary responded, not surprisingly, in what we call the Magnificat, he has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. And we will, of course, not fail to remember that lovely old man, Zechariah, whom we met earlier this year in our Luke studies. Zechariah hung around the temple day after day because the Holy Spirit had told him that he would not die before he had seen the consolation of Israel. The consolation, the consoling of Israel. And upon seeing the baby Jesus, Zechariah cries out, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Well, as we close, let me just give you one more thing that the Jewish people still do to this very day when they read this book in their synagogues. Before the commencement of the first evening service of the fast of Tisha B'Av, they open the curtain that covers the Torah scrolls. If you've not been inside a synagogue, it it looks simply like this. In the centre of the room, there's a, a large cupboard, if you like, and it will be fronted by usually a curtain, sometimes doors, two doors that can swing open, and they contain the scrolls of the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books. And during the service, they'll open the curtains, bring out a scroll, read it, and put them back. But for the entire fast, the 25-hour fast of Tisha B'Av, those curtains are drawn open. The name of that Torah ark curtain is a parachet. Parachet. And at the moment of Jesus' death on the cross, the curtain in the temple, which is also called the parachet, was torn in two, forever opening up the access to God himself through the blood of his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God remembered his people, answering the prayer At the end of Lamentations, restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may return. He has restored us. He is not angry beyond measure. We are welcome to return home. Amen.